right, guys. So yeah, we're uh, we are looking at Psalm one today. Um, I'm not going to read it again. Hunter just read it to us, but I will. We will read through it when we uh, start looking at the text. So I thought it would be good to look at Psalm one. We've been hopefully some of you guys are starting to memorize it. And uh, but yeah, we'll, we'll take a Sunday and uh, take a Lord's Day and look at that Psalm. The thing about this Psalm. This psalm brings us, Psalm 1 brings us the clear reminder, guys, very clear reminder that there are two groups of people in this world. Our world likes to categorize people by maybe how much money you have, what color your skin is, the hundreds of genders there are, you know what I mean. There's really only two categories of people. And this psalm lays it out it's the righteous and the wicked. Two groups of people, the wicked, the righteous, two paths. One which leads to life and one which leads to death. A life of blessing from God or a cursed life. It's a black and white issue. That's what the psalm lays out. Children of the devil, children of God. We are either in Adam or we are in Christ. We are in light or we are in darkness. You guys know the Bible, it's just different ways of communicating the same thing. We see a categorical categorical difference being explained in Genesis 3.15 between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Now this is not the first psalm that was written. Uh, Psalm 90 is the first psalm that was written. That was written by Moses. His one and only psalm that he wrote, I believe. But this psalm was rightly placed first in the Psalter by whoever placed it there. Probably Ezra. But when you see how the psalm is set up, it's it's so wisely put at the very beginning because it lays these things out. I couldn't find any any definite uh, in commentaries, I think even in your Bible, where it says who wrote this Psalm 1. But, many, th- many uh, seem to think that Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 are actually one psalm bracketed together. And you can see in Acts chapter 4, verse 25, where we see Psalm 2 being referred to back to David. It says it in the text. So David's probably the author of Psalm 1. It, it doesn't really matter, but that's probably is who, the author, who the author is of Psalm 1. The outline today is very simple, guys. You have... Two points, the righteous man, the wicked man. Under the righteous man, two subpoints, two subpoints, his description and his destination. Under the wicked man, two subpoints, his description and his destination. Very, very clear from the text. And so let's look at it. <clears throat> the righteous man in verses one through three. We'll look at his description. Uh, with the righteous man, his description is, is going to be most of point one, looking at his destination just real quickly at the end. So his description, it starts off in verse 1. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. So if you guys have this memorized, and the way Shiloh's been singing it in the ESV, I, I, do, I do have the New American Standard, and I know we have others. We're reading the King James and uh, maybe some others as well. But I do have it memorized in the, in the NAS, so it's a little different, not a lot. So the first thing we see about the description of this righteous man is he is blessed. How blessed is the man. Now, now those of you who were here with us about a year ago, guys, when we went through the Beatitudes, this is the same word being used. Remember, we talked about that word for several weeks Probably a couple months, two and a half months of Sundays, we looked at that word, blessed, blessed, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are those who thirst. So it's really the same meaning of this word. The, the, the word means happy, but it's, it's not happy as we would think, as the world would define happy. You know, I'm happy because I'm eating pizza later today. No, that's, that's not it. That does make me happy, but that's not, the, that's not the kind of happy this word's talking about. It's a joy... It's an inner contentment, not based on circumstance. 
It's a bliss, but it's not merely a feeling. It is happiness, but it's rooted in gratitude. And what's it a result of? It's a result of having peace with God. That's where this happiness comes from. It's those who have peace with God. You remember how the Sermon on the Mount started? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And we talked about that poor in spirit was a picture of the person entering into the kingdom of God. That seems like yesterday when we talked about that. We talked about that so often. That it's a, it's a person who's entering into the kingdom of God. It's a picture of salvation. And then the Beatitudes is a picture of the person in the kingdom of heaven. So this, this blessedness comes from being right with God, from, from uh, having peace with God. Romans 5.1 He says, having been justified, that means being in, in legal, right legal standing with God. Having been justified by faith, Paul says we have peace with God. Peace with God. So this blessedness, guys, it is a gift from Almighty God that He gives to His, to His elect when He saves them. Even when we don't feel happy, we're still blessed from God's perspective. Again, Jesus used the words in the Beatitudes. How, and so how blessed is this man as opposed, as we're going to see, to those who are cursed. Okay? To those who are cursed. Who is it that's blessed again? Well, you know, I, I said that, that most, most theologians think that Psalm 1 and 2 are actually bracketed together. You can look at the very end of Psalm 2 that, that Hunter just read for us and we can see the one who is blessed. In verse 12, do homage to the Son or kiss the Son that He not become angry and you perish in the way for His wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in Him. That are, those are the ones who are blessed. The ones who take refuge in Him. The Son. The Anointed One. The Messiah. Those are the ones who are blessed. The ones who have not taken refuge in Him, there only awaits wrath and judgment. Think of the ark. You know, when we think of the ark, that's one of the pictures in the Old Testament of Christ. Those ones who were in the ark were blessed and protected by God. They took refuge in this ark from the coming wrath. All the picture of Christ. And so it's those who take refuge in Jesus Christ. Those who are still in their sins, guys, Romans 2, 5, and 6 reminds us that because of the stubbornness, that's what the Bible says, the stubbornness and unrepentant heart, sinners are storing up wrath for themselves that will be revealed on the day of wrath. So it's those who have taken refuge in Christ. Let me just pause right now. Have you taken refuge in Jesus Christ? Have you taken refuge? Not are you identified with the church? Are you identified with the visible church? Not, well, I know my parents have. That doesn't, that doesn't cut it. Have you taken refuge in Jesus Christ? That is the only way that you can have this, this blessing, this blessedness that this that this psalm is talking about. To be blessed by God. To be right with God. To have peace with God. You see, you're storing up wrath for yourself if you have not found refuge in Christ. And it's by finding refuge in Him, again, that we can have peace with God because He took that very wrath upon Himself. So this, this really is a picture of finding hope in Jesus Christ. So it says the blessed man. The blessed man who has peace, peace with God in verse 1 does not. Three things here. Does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. This blessed man does not take advice from the world, in other words. Yeah, I'll, just, I'll just say it right now and then I'll come back after we look at the blessed man. This is a picture of a Christian, guys. Just like the Beatitudes. Remember that? 
The Beatitudes was a picture of a Christian. Not a a special class of Christian, but of a Christian. And so the first thing we see is how blessed is a man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. He doesn't take advice from this evil world system that is opposed to God. Whether that be direct advice from an ungodly acquaintance, whether it be through media, through news outlets, the the man who has found peace with God is now living in a different realm. He's not finding his counsel habitually, you could say, as a lifestyle from the world, from the wicked. Why? Because he no longer loves the world. When we think of when we think of 1 John 2, 15 and 17, this, this man who is blessed by God, this man who has taken refuge in Christ, now his heart identifies with the writer of or, or John, the writer of, uh, of 1 John. Where he says, Do not love the world or the things in the world, right? If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes. And the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. That's that counsel of the wicked. This world system. This man man or woman, obviously, who's blessed by God, they no longer walk habitually and take counsel from the wicked. The next thing we see, the blessed man who has peace with God does not stand in the path of sinners. Or in the way of sinners, your version might say. He does not stand in the path of sinners. He's going to avoid doing as they do. Okay, It's more settled now. There's a progression here. It's more settled than just walking. It's joining in their manner of conversation and their manner of living. It's not just taking counsel now from the ungodly. Now it's manifesting itself out in the way he or she's living. That's not a characteristic of this blessed man. Again, there seems to be a progression. We really see it here in the third one. Nor sit in the seat of scoffers. This blessed man who has peace with God does not sit in the seat of scoffers. Now, they have progressed from just taking counsel to it affecting the way they live. Now they are associated with them. They persevere, you could say, with them and even instruct others in their scoffing, in their mocking of anything that is of God. It's a scoffing. This is not a... This is not just a... A sinner going along in life, living out his sinful nature. This is a man who has set his heels in the ground and he is a scoffer. He hates... So in other words, he's just descended lower and lower and lower. His heart's harder and harder and harder. He is a scoffer. He is a mocker. That's what he lives for. It's to mock anything that God is for. The scoffer, the scoffer openly defies all that is sacred or holy. He openly mocks sin. He openly mocks God. And he openly mocks the judgment to come. Where is his judgment? He has no regard for God. No regard for His Word. He's, he's what the Proverbs calls a fool. Okay, When you read in the Proverbs, a fool... This is, this is what this man is, the scorner, the mocker. Now some of these people, guys, it's real important to uh, look at it, something here. Some of these people will hold, even hold on to a profession of faith. Okay, I mean a lot of mockers who then turn around and say, well, I'm, I'm a Christian too. And you're thinking, what? That doesn't line up. Matter of fact, there's a lot of them. They're a mocker, they're a scoffer. They're mocking you for preaching the gospel that they supposedly profess. So some of them will will even hold on to a profession, but their lives tell the real story, guys. Okay, Titus one sixteen says they they are those who profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him. Okay, by their deeds, 
The, the life of a person is always going to tell the real story over a given period of time. Okay? They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him. It's the Matthew 7 crowd, right? We're pretty familiar with. We just finished Matthew 7. It's the Matthew 7 crowd. These are those who profess. They still have some form of profession of faith in Christ. They call Jesus Lord. Remember, He says, not everyone who says to Me on that day, Lord, Lord, when are the kingdom of heaven? He said, many will cry out to Me on that day, Lord, Lord. We did all these religious deeds in Your name. Right? They, they profess to know God. But He's going to tell them, depart from Me, I never knew you. I never knew you. You're a stranger to Me. You're a worker of lawlessness. So, so some of these people will still hold on, hold on to a profession and yet at the same time be a scoffer. Believe it or not. There are those people out there. Others may openly walk away from their verbal, verbal profession. I don't, I don't believe in that junk anymore. That type of deal. That's, that's, the, that's the crowd in the 1 John 2.19. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown or demonstrated that they are not all of us. Okay. Now both of these texts, the context is dealing with false teachers, but it also implies false believers as well. Okay, You, you met those people? You know that. Uh, you know, and, they, and there's a there's a combination of some of these folks. But you know, you may meet somebody. Maybe they maybe they do still hold the profession. But yeah, I ain't been in church in forty years. <laughs> I ain't read my Bible in forty five years. I'm a practicing fornicator, drunkard. Da 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 da. But I but I, I was saved at church camp when I was three. That's that's you know, that's the idea. But yeah, some of them just completely, I don't believe in that junk. And so when they walk away, guys, they didn't lose anything. They never had it had it to begin with. And so I bring these things up, guys, uh, because we've got to be on guard against these things. The Bible tells the people of God to be on guard against these things like apostasy and falling away. Okay? We're to be on guard against these things. Because we're all tempted in these areas. And we may fall for a season, okay? We may fall for a season. You may fall in a, in a season of sin, but we have a promise, okay? Now this is where, this is one of those times where having a, a really just sound doctrine gives us clear understanding of what's going on with, with all of these types of things that we're talking about. Falling away, false professions, we have a promise, guys. Listen to Hebrews 12, verses 6 and 7. For those whom the... Uh, and, and he's taking this... He's taking part of this out of Proverbs 3.12. It's not a direct quote. He says, For those whom the Lord loves, He disciplines, and He scourges every son whom He receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline. Have you, ever, have you ever thought about the fact, guys, that a true believer, if we're sitting here today and we truly are dwelt with the Holy Spirit, we're truly born again, the reason we endure is because of the discipline of the Lord. He, in other words, He keeps us in line. Listen to the language of this. Heather, this is the verse uh, when it was just a few of us Wednesday night that I read out of Jeremiah. It's a promise of the new covenant. Okay, Listen to this promise, guys. This is for the people of God right here. Jeremiah 32.40 I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from them to, to do them good. And he says this, listen here. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts so that they will not turn from me. It's the promise of the new covenant, guys. Why is it that, that, the, that the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints is true? That right there. Because God preserves us. He disciplines us. He's given us His Spirit. He's adopted us into His family. He's not going to let us. He will not let His, His children walk away from Him. Try it. Try it. First of all, you don't want to do it. 
But listen to that promise. God says this. I will put the fear of me in their hearts so that they will not turn away from me. That's a promise from God. The reason I know that I'm going to endure to the end is not because of me. It's because of the promise God made me and made you as His children. Amen? Amen. We're secure in Him. Okay? So for those, but that's why the Scripture, it, you know, it, it's the whole idea of working out your salvation with fear and trembling, but yet it's God who gives you the ability to do so. You know, it's a, it's a fine line. It's a tension in the Scriptures always. We are responsible not to fall away. But if you're God's, you're not going to. But it's a warning. It's a warning to those who are tempted to fall away that really it's a warning to, to repent. That, that your profession is, 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 on, is, on, is, is rooted on the sand. So verse 2, let's look at... Uh, we're still looking at His, um, his description. Positively now, His delight is in the law of the Lord. It says, but His delight is in the law of the Lord, and in His law He meditates day and night. That word delight, it expresses all that makes the man of God happy. The law of the Lord satisfies Him. In other words, it's His chief desire. What is your attitude what is your attitude towards the Word of God? That's what we have to ask you. Okay? The law of the Lord, just it's your Bible. It's the Word of God. It's not just the Decalogue. It's not just the Ten Commandments. It is the Word of God from Genesis to Revelation. The Bible says this blessed man delights in the Word of God. He delights in the law of the Lord. It is his chief desire. Okay, I'm just going to say this because I think... Biblically, it's true. I know biblically it's true. But I'm sorry. You do not have to hound or beg the people of God who are His sheep to read the Bibles. You don't have to hound them. Because they're going to have a desire to. Now yes, do we have to make discipline? All of these things, that's not what I'm saying. So don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying if you don't read your Bible this much every day, well, you're obviously not God. That's not what I'm saying. But you don't have to hound and beg people to read the God who are converted. There's a natural desire, a delight in their heart towards the Word of God. Paul uses this phrase in, in uh, Romans 7.22. He says, I delight in the law and the inner man. In the inner man. Remember, the inner man's been changed. We've been made new. In Christ, our desires have changed. Our affections have changed. This, this phrase, it's, it's synonymous with fearing the Lord. Psalm 112 verse 1 says, Praise the Lord. How blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in His commandments. See how those are they're one and the same? The person who delights in the law of God is the same one who has a fear of God. Why? Because God put that fear in our hearts. It's a work of it's a work of regeneration, a work of the Holy Spirit that God gives us all when He saves us. It's it's new creation language, right? If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. The law of the Lord, Genesis to Revelation. So that means that the blessed man, the blessed woman delights in the Word of God, whether it's John 3.16, the promises of God's love, or even the strong warnings in Scripture. We delight in the Word of God. It's food for our soul. Amen? It's the bread of life to God's people. He meditates on it day and night, the Scripture says. Just the idea of of reflecting continually on God's Word in, in the course of everyday life. It's not just a, well, I, I did my church thing and now I don't even think about the Word of God throughout the week. That's not a picture of the person that's, that's found peace with God. It says in verse 3, He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water. 
firmly planted by streams of water. Like a tree planted. Not a wild tree, okay? But this is a tree planted by the divine planter. Somebody planted this blessed man. Obviously, this is a metaphor. But it's the idea of being planted by the divine planter. Jeremiah 17. Uh, 5 through 8, real, real quickly. Some similar language here. Jeremiah 17. 5 through 8. Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in mankind and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. For he will be like a bush in the desert. This is just a contrast to the, to the man planted by streams of water. This cursed man, he'll be like a bush in the desert and will, and will not see when prosperity comes, but will live in stony wastes in the wilderness, a land of salt without inhabitant. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose trust is the Lord. For he will be like a tree planted by the water that extends its root by a stream and will not fear when the heat comes. But its leaves will be green and it will not be anxious in a year of drought nor cease to yield fruit. So we see a picture, this metaphor, this picture of this tree planted by the streams of water. So you picture the roots going down. There's a never-ending supply of water when you picture a stream. That's the idea here. John 15, 13. Jesus speaking to His disciples about the Pharisees whom He had offended. He says this, But He answered and said, Every plant which My Father did not plant shall be uprooted. Okay? Talking about the, the Pharisees. John 7, John 7, verse 38, He who believes in Me, Christ says, as the Scripture said, from His innermost being will flow rivers of living water. It's that language, the, 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 the language of, of, of being planted by streams of water and have rivers of living water inside of us because of the, the, the life of God is in the believer. The presence of the Holy Spirit. The new heart that He's given us. Just this, this picture of life, vibrant life in the Lord. It says, which yields its fruit in the season. Verse 3, which yields its fruit in the season. Charles Spurgeon says in his commentary about this, about this part of this verse, the man who delights in God's Word, being taught by it, bringeth forth, here it is, patience in the time of suffering, faith in the day of trial, and joy in the hour of of prosperity. So it's not just yielding fruit, but yielding fruit in its season at the appropriate time. Because it's the life of God in us. It's the fruit of it's the fruit of the spirit. It's God living in us. And so we actually bear fruit in season. It's a beautiful thing. Its leaf does not wither. Its we, its leaf does not wither. It's not seasonal. It's like the evergreen. It's green all year round. But, but the difference is, is, why is it green all year round? Because of the continual source of the water supply. This is the blessed man. His life is rooted in, in Christ. He's got the divine life of the, of the Holy Spirit living. We, we have that on the inside of us. And it says this, and in whatever He does, he prospers in verse 3. Whatever he does, he prospers. That is one of the verses that the health, wealth, and prosperity crowd will come and hijack. Oh, you see that? Prosperity. Flip over to uh, Psalm 37. Real quick, I'm going to read um, verses 1 through 20. Just to have a clear understanding that that's not what this scripture is talking about. Okay? When it's talking about all that he does prospers. Oh, so you mean if I 
if I get it right with God, there you go. There's the promise. Folks, if God chooses to prosper you financially, then He may well do so. But He may, He may, He may cause those who are blessed in Him to be dirt poor and trust Him for every meal. That's not what this is talking about. Psalm 37, 1 through 20. Do not fret because of evildoers. Be not envious toward wrongdoers, for they will wither quickly like the grass and fade like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell on the land and cultivate faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in Him, and He will do it. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your judgment as the noonday. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Do not fret because of Him who prospers in His way, because of the man who carries out wicked schemes. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret. It leads only to evil doing. For evildoers will be cut off. But those who wait for the Lord, they will inherit the land. Yet a little while, and the wicked, the wicked man will be no more. And you will look carefully for his place, and he will not be there. But the humble will inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant prosperity. I want to pause real quickly. Anytime you see these promises of the humble and inheriting the land, yes, there may be a, a, a near prophetic fulfillment, but that is ultimately pointing to the new heavens and the new earth. When the meek shall inherit the earth, okay? That's what we see in, in Scripture. Um, the wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes at him with his teeth. You hear that? The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes at him with his teeth. What's the Lord's response? The Lord laughs at him. The Lord laughs at him for he sees his day coming. A warning to the wicked. You may laugh, you may mock, but understand this, that the God of heaven is laughing at you. And He sees your day coming. It has been appointed for a man once to die, and after that the judgment. It says, The wicked have drawn the sword and bent their bow to cast down the afflicted and the needy, to slay those who are upright in conduct. Their sword will enter their own heart, and their bows will be broken. Better is the little of the righteous than the abundance of the wicked. For the arms of the wicked will be broken, but the Lord sustains the righteous. The Lord knows the day of the blameless, and their inheritance will be forever. They will not be ashamed in the time of evil, and in the days of famine they will have an abundance, but the wicked will perish. I'm not going to say anything about that because we're going to cover that in our... In our second point, the wicked will perish. So this is not prospering with... This is not talking about prospering financially, but prospering in our soul in Psalm 1. He will prosper. The blessed man prospers in all that he does. Beloved, think about this. The purposes of God, okay? Often in God's wisdom and His purposes, He sees fit, okay, that it is prosperous to our soul to suffer sickness, to suffer temptation, to suffer persecution. These are the, this is the wisdom of God. No matter where God has us in life, He has placed us there to prosper for His purposes. What's one of the greatest promises we we quote in the New Testament? Romans 8.28, right? Knowing this, that all things work together for good for those who love God, those who are the called. All things do work together for good to prosper us. To prosper us, to to conform us to the image of Christ. Romans 8.29. For His purposes. For His purposes. To make us holy. To make us a reflection of Jesus Christ in this world. And many times in His wisdom, it does, it takes persecution, it takes suffering, it takes temptation, all of these things. Sickness. He uses these things to prosper us. 
That goes against the message of the world, doesn't it? You know, you think about Joseph's life. Think about Joseph's life. Sold into slavery by his brothers. You know, at, at one point he was placed in Potiphar's house and, uh, you know, accused of, of raping his wife, basically. Put in a dungeon. And you see Joseph's trust in the Lord the whole way. His faithfulness. And, and obviously we see, looking back at it in the Scriptures, how God used all of that for His purposes. Okay? He was prospering even, in, even in, when He's sitting in a dungeon, being falsely accused. There's no indication in the Scriptures of Joseph being angry at God and complaining. He trusted the Lord. So, beloved, trust the Lord whenever you're put in difficult situations knowing that if you have peace with God, if you're in Christ, if you have taken refuge in Him and you know Him, then in whatever you do, when you're in God's will, you're prospering for His purposes. Amen? And then, and then lastly, His destination. Real quickly. Real quickly, His destination. Think about what it says in the verse 3. And in whatever He does, He prospers. This blessed man. The righteous man prospers even in his or her death. Have you ever thought about that? What did Paul say? To live is Christ, right? But to die is even better. Again, that's backwards in this world, right? Not, not, and not in some, not in some, um, you know, dark, perverted way. But have you ever thought, man, I look forward to death. <laughs> that's the idea, guys. To live is Christ. But to die is gain. Why? We're going to be with Him. That is prospering in even death. Listen to Matthew 25, 34. Uh, this is the parable of the sheep and the goats. This, this is Jesus talking to the sheep who are on His right. He says, Come, you who are blessed. There it is. You who are blessed of My Father inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. That is prospering in death. To live as Christ and to die is gain. For the believer to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And then it just gets better. Because eventually we have a resurrected body waiting for us. Isn't that awesome, Justin? <laughs> no more getting tired. No more getting sick. No more... One hour night to sleep. You know what I mean? He's just nodding off over there. <laughs> All of these things that we battle, guys, our bodies are decaying. But one of these days, those who have taken refuge in the sun, we will prosper even in death. Psalm 116.15 Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of His saints. Amen. And so guys... That, that's a look at, the, at, at, this, at this blessed man, this righteous man. Hopefully, I have described you in this text. Not perfectly. There's only been one perfect blessed man, which is Christ. Christ lived this life perfectly. So none of us are going to fit this category perfectly. But hopefully this does describe you. This is a description of a Christian. Okay, Not a super saint, but of a, of a Christian. We're going to have a love for God, a love for Christ. We're going to have a desire to get our counsel from God's Word, from what God has to say, from God's people. We no longer love this world that we, that we used to love. You know, think of it. It's conversion, right? It's conversion. We now love the things that we used to hate. We now hate the things that we used to love. All things have become new. Obviously, this is going to be on different levels for different people, different stages of sanctification. But these things had better be there in your life, guys, if you profess Christ. And if I profess Christ. That, that's the idea. Now let's look at the, uh, the, the wicked man in verses 4-6. through six. His description. <clears throat> in verse 4 and 5. Or in verse 4. The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff which the wind drives away. That phrase, not so. The Septuagint or the Septuagint, the translation of the Hebrew Bible into the Greek language, 
emphatically repeats this. That phrase, not so, it says it like this. Not so the ungodly or the wicked. They are not so. It's a strong, emphatic contrast. So we looked at the, we looked at the, uh, the blessed man. And so, and so the wicked man, it says they are not so. So what we just looked at, is the wicked are not so. So on the contrary, they are led by the counsel of the wicked. Habitually, as a pattern of life. They do stand in the path of sinners, or in the way of sinners. And yes, they do sit in the seat of scoffers. That's where they abide. They do not delight in the law of the Lord. Before I was converted, I had zero interest, zero delight, much despised for the law of the Lord. Romans 8 verse 7 teaches that they actually are hostile towards God and towards His law. Again, some of these people will hold on to a profession of faith. We've got to take them to the Scriptures. This is what the Scripture says. Examine yourself. Examine yourself. And they are not like the tree that's firmly planted by streams of water, which is what the very next part says. It says, they are like chaff which the wind drives away. They're like chaff. Oh, you know, hold, hold on just a second. I, I, I jumped ahead. I actually had them. Yeah, I had, I, had a, I had a quote from Matthew Henry. That's really good, so I, I'm sorry. I don't want to miss that. So yeah, they're not, they're, not like the, they're not like the tree firmly planted by streams of water. Okay, Matthew Henry says, they have no delight in the law of God, nor ever think of it. They bring forth no fruit, and that, as only Henry could say, or Spurgeon or somebody like that, he says this, they bring forth no fruit but grapes of Sodom. That's the fruit they have hanging from their branches are grapes of Sodom. You want to you see what grapes of Sodom look like? Listen to Galatians chapter 5. This is in contrast to the fruits of the Spirit. In Galatians chapter 5, guys, now the, in, in verse 19, now the deeds of the flesh, he, he could very well just say the fruits of the flesh. He's contrasting the wicked and the righteous. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident. These are, these are fruits of Sodom. Which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's fruits of Sodom. And again, another warning to take refuge in the Son. Following that, what does He say? The fruit of the Spirit, guys. The fruit that comes from abiding in Christ. The fruit that comes from this new life in Christ. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. That's a contrast. It's a contrast. The wicked and the righteous. And so it says they are like chaff which the wind drives away. The Noah, Noah Webster Dictionary of 1828. If you don't have one of those, can I recommend you get one? Big old book I just ordered not long ago. It's the Noah Webster Dictionary of 1828. It's very Christ-centered. And on top of that, now guys, they're actually changing definitions of words. You can look at the Webster's Dictionary currently and it's, you're going to see them already changing definitions. So, uh, so, so they're like chaff. That dictionary says this about, about chaff. That, just think of the, the husk 
the dry calyx of corn and grasses, okay? In common language, the word is applied to husk when separated from the corn by threshing, riddling, or winnowing. I was thinking in our day by the big combine driving through the cornfields and you see the stuff, part of the husk and the dust and floating up in the air, that's the chaff. And if it's windy, blows it away. That's a picture of the wicked. That's a picture of the wicked. It goes on to say uh, things like refuse, worthless matter, especially that which is light and apt to be driven by the wind. Driven away by the wind. A metaphor to help us understand the, the wicked. They're like chaff. Oh, they may be prospering now, but they're going to be blown away like chaff. Listen to this quote out of the Expositor's Bible Commentary. The metaphor of chaff reveals both the uselessness of the wicked and the ease. This almost sends chills up my spine. And the ease with which God will deal with them. The ease with which God will deal with them. You know, over in Psalms 2, it says, Why are the nations in an uproar? The kings of the earth take their stand. You realize how easy God will deal with them? Think of the smallest, most weak creature you can think of. I know they get much smaller, but I was thinking of a flea. Think of a flea that's not even full grown, a sickly flea. And think of a herd of elephants. I mean, it's not even a... And that's not even a comparison to how easy God will deal with the wicked. Think of the most, lar- the largest, most hot, raging fire you've ever been around. Maybe a big brush fire. You can feel it from me to the back wall. You know, and think of the smallest little piece of a dry leaf or a twig. How fast it be consumed. That's nothing compared to how easy God will deal with the wicked. Oh, if you're not in Christ, take refuge in Him. And, 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 and flee from His wrath. Isaiah 17.13 says, The nations rumble on like the rumbling of many waters, but He will rebuke them and they will flee far away and be chased like chaff in the mountains before the wind or like a whirling dust before a gale. Picture dust spinning. You got a, you got a windstorm coming in, and dust just spinning and blowing away. That's the wicked. The righteous are like trees firmly planted by streams of water. They're established in Christ. They're going to endure to the end. We will be able to stand in the judgment because His wrath was poured out upon His Son in our place. Not so the wicked. They'll they'll have to endure it all. Again, Isaiah 17, 13, it's similar language. It says the nations rumble. I mean, listen to the language of Psalm 2. And by the way, I'll, I'll probably be preaching through Psalm 2 in the next couple months just because it goes with Psalm 1. So we'll take a break on some Sunday and look at Psalm 2. But why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings, take, the kings of the earth take their stand. Think about our leaders nowadays. They take their stand against, against the Lord and against His anointed, the Christ. What's God's response? Again, same language as the other psalm we looked at. He sits in the heavens and laughs. How easy it's going to be to, to deal with them. The Lord scoffs at them. He mocks them. So that's a description of the wicked. Now his destination. Verse 5 and 6. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. The day of judgment is coming. Okay? The day of judgment is coming. The day of judgment came upon Christ. Amen? You remember Golgotha? Judgment fell upon Christ. 
But the day of final judgment is coming. We see in this text, or, or, or actually not in this text, we understand in Scripture that right now it's mixed. Okay, It says the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous in verse 5. It's mixed now. In other words, there's tares among the wheat. Good fish among the bad. You may be playing games with God. You may know you're playing games with God. You may be sitting with God's people. Mixed with the the, the visible church. But one day, there will be a separation that will be clear and that will be full and that will be final. There will be a separation on that day. Matthew 13, verses 47 through 50. A parable, a short parable that tells us of that day. The dragnet. Again, this dragnet, guys, it's a net that literally went from almost like the surface all the way down to the floor. And and they would just drag it very slow and it would catch everything in its path. So it's not like a throw net. This is a dragnet. And it says, The kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet cast into the sea and gathering fish of every kind. Everything in its path. And when it was filled, they, they drew it up on the beach and they sat down and gathered the good fish in the containers and the bad they threw away. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth and take out the wicked from among the righteous. And there will be a separation. It says they will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That is the final judgment that's coming. Weeping and gnashing of teeth. The wicked will not stand in the judgment. They will have to bear the full weight of the anger and wrath of God for their sin because they refuse to take refuge in the Son. They will no longer be in the assembly of the righteous. There's there's bad fish amongst the good when when the righteous gather in this life. There's many wicked among the assembly of the righteous, but on that day, the separation will be made. The wicked will not stand in judgment. Matthew 25, 41, the same parable we looked at a while ago. The sheep and the goats. This is those on His left. Where He says, depart from Me. Not blessed ones, but accursed ones. Some of you guys that are turning, I'll let you turn there. Matthew 25, 41. Jesus says to those on His left, the goats, depart from Me, accursed ones. Why does it say accursed ones? The Bible says all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed is every man who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law. Those who refuse to find refuge in Christ are under the curse of the law. Because God demands a perfect righteousness. And so these are those who die in that state. They die under the curse. They're cursed by God. Praise be to God that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, those who take refuge in Him. But these these folks never took refuge in Him. So now that wrath that they've been storing up because of their stubbornness, because of their unrepentant heart, is fixing to be poured out upon them. Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. That is a fearful day, guys. I do not preach those verses with pleasure, but with faithfulness. Flee to the Son. If you do not know Christ, flee to Him, I beg you. The Scripture actually says that that we're ambassadors for Christ as God making His appeal through us. He says, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And the language is, God is begging you 
He's begging you to be reconciled to Him through His Son, through the preacher. And I'm begging you if you're not. Uh, you'll no longer be in the assembly of the righteous. You, you might be now, but not then. The day of separation is coming. And in verse 6, For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. He knows the way of the righteous. That's a comfort, guys. For those who are in Christ, those who have taken refuge in Christ, those who have gotten into the ark of God, who have heard the command, obeyed the command to repent, to believe upon Jesus Christ, those who have trusted in Him and Him alone, in His perfect life, His substitutionary death, His resurrection from the grave as their only hope, that He is the way, the truth, and the life, that there's no other way to the Father except through Him, this is a great promise. That He knows the way of the righteous. Now this is not talking about that just He, he knows His omniscience. He knows the way of the wicked too, right? This is, so this is an intimate language. He knows your way. He knows your way intimately, savingly, covenant, covenantally. If I pronounce that right. 2 Timothy 2.19, the Lord, He knows those who are His. And He's got His eye on you. Okay? You guys ever seen the Lord of the Rings? Probably most people. What was the big eye called? Somebody. What was it? I, I can never remember even when we're watching it. It's like, what is all these names? You know, that's the eye... That, think of that eye as like the eye on the wicked that God sees you and judgment's coming. But not with, his, not with his, the righteous ones. His eye is upon you. And the Lord, the Lord loves His people. He smiles upon us. We're blessed in Christ. It's an intimate language. He knows those who are His. Psalm 138.6 says this, For the Lord is exalted. Okay? yet He regards the lowly. The lowly, the humble, the contrite, the poor in spirit. His people. He regards the lowly, but the haughty He knows from afar. So obviously He knows all about them, but not in this intimate way like He knows us. And it's only because of Christ, right? It's only because we found refuge in, in Jesus Christ. Listen to what Spurgeon says about Psalm 138.6, guys, and we're, uh, we're getting close to wrapping up. He says this, he views them with pleasure. Okay? The lowly, His people. He views them with pleasure. He thinks of them with care. He listens to their prayers. You guys realize that? God listens to your prayers. He hears your prayers. He listens to, your, he listens to their prayers. He protects them from evil. Because they think little of themselves, He thinks much of them. They reverence Him and He respects them. They are low in their own esteem and He makes them high in His esteem. You hear the language of that? I think of, I think of the, uh, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. After Jesus finished the parable, then He said, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. That means you exalt yourself in this life, you're going to be humbled in the next. But He says, everyone who humbles himself in this life will be exalted in the next. That's the language. He knows your way, beloved. Take, take comfort in that. He knows your way. He knows when you're hurting. He knows when you're grieving. He knows when you've lost a little one like we experienced yesterday. He's there to comfort you. He knows when you're being tempted. You can turn to Him in that time of temptation. He provides not only His Spirit, Himself through His Spirit, He provides His church. He knows we're weak. The, the picture of this Lord's table is an expression of God's love for us because He knows we're weak. Calvin put it this way. He, God stoops down in our level and literally gives us a visual picture to remember His Son. Because He knows we're weak. It benefits us. It's a means of grace. He knows all these things. He knows your way. Those who have been made poor in spirit. Those who have entered through the narrow gate. He knows the narrow gate you're on, right? He's walked that narrow path in our place and fulfilled it completely. 
He is this blessed man in perfection. And He's the one we are trusting in. He knows all the temptations you face. When we go through the Pilgrim's Progress, God knows. Christ knows. He's there with us. He will never leave us, never, never forsake us as we're marching towards that celestial city. So He knows the way of the righteous. But the way of the wicked will perish. The way of the wicked will perish. That word perish, guys, don't think of it as, like the world will try to tell you, as annihilation. Oh, it just means you're going to perish, yeah. You're just going to be, you know, worm dirt. No, the idea is perishing. The idea is to perish, but always perishing. You know, you read the language in Revelation, it's where they were seeking death, but they could not find it. It's perishing, but always perishing. A continual state of perishing is the way I heard Steve Lawson describe this. The wide gate. The way of the wicked will perish. It's the way of the wide gate that we looked at in Matthew 7. The broad path that will escort you to an eternal destruction. That, 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 that perishing, but to perish, but always perishing, it's the language of a place where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Do you realize that when God gives us a description of hell, it's trying to help us to understand somehow what it's like because it's so horrible we can't understand. Just like heaven. Our minds can't comprehend how great heaven is. Our minds can't comprehend how horrible the horrors of hell are. I've heard it explained by many, by many commentators that the worm, the phrase the worm does not die, it has implications of, of the sinner having a conscience or, or, or having a memory. Can you imagine that? Not only are you under the, the, the wrath of God, but you can remember this life. All the opportunities you had to get right with God. When God was seeking you out, begging you to come to His Son. And you hardened your heart. It's, it's, the wicked will perish, but they will always be perishing under the wrath of God. The language of Revelation 14.11, the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. It doesn't say for a hundred years, for a thousand years for a million years, for a billion years, forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. Don't perish. What's the command here, guys? What's the plea? Don't perish. Right? Don't perish. Young people, old people are like, don't perish. Don't perish. You see, they see that the wicked, they're never going to have rest day or night ever in hell. There's no rest in hell. There's no exits in hell. But what did Jesus say? I seem to quote this verse a lot because it is one of the most precious promises in the Word. I think I finished yesterday with it. Come to Me, all who labor, and I will give you rest. Take My yoke upon you and learn from Me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. Rest. You want rest? Then take refuge in the Son. He says, whoever comes to Me, I will never turn away. Christ will never turn away a sinner that comes in repentant faith. So I, I, so I would just, always guys, always, what keeps sinners from coming to Christ is pride. Don't be too proud to come to Christ. What would it profit a man if he gained the whole world and lost his soul? I'm always here to talk to. Talk to. Plenty of believers in this church. Okay, God in His grace has placed you here to get to hear the Gospel. How you can be reconciled to God. Do not take that for granted. Because that's going to be a lot to be accountable to before God. Let's pray.
Father, thank you for your grace, Lord. We thank you, Father, for your clear warnings in Scripture, Lord. We don't read these with pleasure, God, but at the same time we delight in your Word. We delight that you have so clearly shown us how we can be right with you. Not only have you shown us, but you have provided. You are our provider. That's one of your names, Jehovah Jireh. You provided the Lamb that would die in our place. We thank You for it. Father, as we uh, just prepare our hearts, God, to, to take communion, to take the Lord's Supper together, Lord, I, I just pray, Father, that, that, uh, that, that, that if there's anybody in here who doesn't know You, Lord, that You would... By Your grace, God, You said that the Gospel is the power of God unto salvation, Lord. And, and so, as the Gospels proclaim, God, by the power of Your Holy Spirit, Father, I beg You to reconcile sinners to Yourself. Lord, it would obviously be my hope and my desire as the pastor of 116 Bible Church, Lord, that all who are, who are in this church visibly, Lord, would be, would be a part of the invisible church as well. Truly part of the new covenant. Truly your people. Truly regenerate. So Lord, I just pray that, that you would, in your kindness and your grace, God, that you would draw your people to yourself, God, through our church, through the, the Word preached in the pulpit week after week, the, the, the evangelism, through our personal evangelism, God, that you would just find, find it in your grace, Lord, to add to your church through this local church. And Lord, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.